Alleluia, Christ is risen. Well, it's day eight of our 50-day-long Easter party. So how are you doing? Partied out yet? Just getting going? It's hard to sustain 50 days worth of celebration, isn't it? Even harder when we're in social isolation. But keep trying, though. How are we going to manage to celebrate for all of eternity if we haven't got the stamina to have it go for 50 days? Maybe that's the most important thing that Lent is for. <clears throat> Not so much to make us ready to enter into the good news of the resurrection as to build up our strength so that we can celebrate for the whole 50 days of Easter. We mark the time of Eastertide in worship in several ways. We not only restore the alleluias that we had fasted from during Lent, we say and sing more of them. It's the first and last word of the service during Easter. In accordance with the decree from the Council of Nicaea, we do not say confession as part of our worship during Easter. By doing so, we act out our faith that in Jesus' resurrection, our sins are already forgiven. We have particular hymns we sing, and unlike Christmas, when we have at the most two Sundays to get in all our favorites, we have seven Sundays to work through the Easter hymns and carols. We normally wear our most festive resurrection clothes and deck the church out in white and gold, the colors that have been chosen to symbolize resurrection. So if you want to pause this video for a minute and go put on your Easter bonnet, go ahead and do it. And make sure to wear it for our virtual coffee hour later today. And during Eastertide, we change somewhat the customary form of our readings. During most of the year, our first reading is from the Hebrew Bible. Our second reading is usually from one of the epistles, read more or less in sequence from Sunday to Sunday. <clears throat> and our gospel reading is usually from whichever of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, is appointed for that particular year. Today, though, we begin with a reading from the Acts of the Apostles, volume two in what Luke intended to be a three-volume account of Jesus and his followers. We don't know if Luke ever wrote that third volume, but if he did, it is lost to us. Then we read from 1 Peter, one of a tiny number of writings that have come down to us that were written by someone who actually knew Jesus when he was alive. And for our gospel reading, we heard not from Matthew, whose year it is in our three-year cycle of readings, but from John, who gives us the most detailed account of Jesus's post-resurrection appearances to the disciples. And one of the things we learn from the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus is <clears throat> that faith is a thing that grows slowly. We, 2,000 years later, are confident about what the story is and what it means, but the disciples and the other followers of Jesus were not. In fact, it took them many years to begin to work out what this most strange set of occurrences, Jesus alive, then dead, then alive again, and teaching all the while, and then taken up into the heavens, what all of that means. And Thomas is perhaps our best guide on this journey to understanding. <clears throat> we have given Thomas the nickname Doubting Thomas, but I think it would be fairer to call him Brokenhearted Thomas. He had cast his lot with Jesus, given up his former life to follow this man whom he loved, 
and whom he believed and whom he believed in. And when he saw his friend and teacher dead on the cross, it wasn't his faith that was broken, it was his heart. Now Thomas is out when Jesus first shows up in that locked upper room. Maybe he was the designated shopper for the apostles, who can say? So he comes back to the room, does the secret knock, whispers the password, and comes in with his arms loaded with eggs and flour and hand sanitizer and toilet paper that he found somewhere. Small wonder that he refuses to allow any hope to arise inside him when his friends eagerly start telling him that they have seen Jesus alive. It's not that the story is improbable, but that believing his friends will open his heart up to being hurt again, and he just can't bear it. You see, doubt isn't the problem, it's fear. And fear, not doubt, is the opposite of faith. Doubt is actually a gift from God. Doubt is what allows our faith to grow. Faith that is founded on certainty alone is a pretty small faith, because when it comes to God, there's very little that we can actually know for certain. That great cynic Dorothy Parker in her poem Inventory said, four be the things I am wiser to know, idleness, sorrow, a friend, and a foe. Four be the things I'd been better without, love, curiosity, freckles, and doubt. Three be the things I shall never attain, envy, content, and sufficient champagne. Three be the things I shall have till I die, laughter and hope and a sock in the eye. Now, leaving aside the question of freckles, which is, as any reader of Pippi Longstocking knows, a disputed point, the remaining three things that Parker says she'd have been better off without, love, curiosity, and doubt, far from being dispensable are, I believe, the essential ingredient of faithful living. <clears throat> and today, the first thing that we hear after last week's news that the tomb was empty is the story of Thomas's great doubt. Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Thomas, unwilling to open himself up to renewed hope until he is certain his heart won't be broken again, sets a standard that, luckily for him, Jesus is more than willing to fulfill. Thomas puts his hand in Jesus's wounds, and his doubt and fear are cast aside, and his broken heart is mended. Now, if that's anything like the state of your faith, if you need to touch the wounds of Jesus in order to believe, Jesus stands ready to let you, even now. For just as we are the body of Christ, the wounds of the world are Jesus's wounds, and you can put your hands in them any day by caring for the sick, the needy, and the sorrowful. This is a standing invitation from Jesus. If you want your faith strengthened, tend to those in need. But in Thomas's story, we also find another invitation, which is to embrace and explore your own doubts. For they are not a sign of faithlessness, but an invitation to a deeper, richer faith. So carry your doubts with you. Dance with your doubts. Bring them with you to church and to the world. 
and let Jesus show himself to you, wounds and all. The story that is at the center of our faith is a hard one to believe. Not that people would die for their God, but that God would die for people. Not that God was immune to death, but that God, by enduring death, overcame it. That's pretty fantastic stuff. And we all find parts of the story hard to believe at times. We may find it hard to believe that death is truly overcome when it is obvious that the world is still in death's grip. We may find it hard to believe that this ancient and impossible story has anything to do with us. We may find it hard when we are facing our own trials, when touching our own wounds, to believe that God truly loves us. For congregations, a time of transition can bring all those doubts to the fore. Will the new rector be as good as the old one? Better? Worse? Our life as a community has been pretty painful recently. Things seemed better, but with everything that's going on right now, are they really? Where is God in the middle of all of this? In the transition? In the pandemic? What is going to be expected of me during this time? When the church is able to reopen? When the new rector arrives? Who the community is? how the members love and support and welcome one another, where the community is going and how it leads to God's love and promise. All of these things change through disruptions of routine and through transitions in leadership. In fact, they change all the time, but transitions and disruptions force us to notice those changes. And uncertainty, doubt about who we are and where we are going, and how or whether we will get there makes it hard to know what to do, how to leave all that doubt behind and live fully into the joy to which we are called by God. But Thomas leads us not to leave our doubts behind, but to bring them with us to the party. We learn our faith best by experience, and we need to experience that there is new life, better life, beyond what we have known that change can be life-giving, that the truth can make us free. And if we want to insist, as Thomas does, that Jesus answer our doubts and questions in person, we need to be where Jesus is found. And Jesus can be found in the same place that Thomas found him, here, wherever you are. We know his presence most easily in the sacraments that as the church and temporary exile are denied to us now. But although he may be harder to see in the fallible, imperfect lives we live, or in the wounds of a bleeding and broken world, we are still, wherever we are, where Jesus is. I'd like to finish with another less lighthearted poem, because sometimes poetry is the only way to talk about the things that matter most. This is from Steve Garnas Holmes, UMC minister, musician, poet, and truth teller. You want to see real resurrection, not its paperwork? You want to touch it? And you know where to look. Ignore your packaged and trimmed doctrine. Don't even look in your slick success stories. Look in your wounds. Reach out and put your hand in your losses 
the mark of your shame? Where is it empty? Where does your failure flop out of its costume and bleed all over the floor? Go ahead, touch it. Put your hand on your inadequacy. The deepest wounds go deeper than you. Sit a while with the corpse of yourself. Wait there. Wait for what you can't wait for, can't ask for. Let that great emptiness open up in you. Let it be as vast as God, the wound divine, your anguish and your beloved one. There where it's hopeless, that's where the hope is. Go there, listen for the voice. Hallelujah, Christ is risen.